Hello and welcome back to the Middling Along podcast. My guest this time is Lizzie Penny. Lizzie is an entrepreneur and a campaigner for WorkStyle, the freedom to choose when and where you work. She's fascinated by how new working practices can fundamentally redefine inclusion at work, while also improving well-being and step-changing productivity. She's co-authored a book on WorkStyle with her business partner, Alex Hurst, and that was published in October 2022. When she's not being a spokesperson for the WorkStyle revolution, Lizzie focuses on virtual leadership and building cohesive cultures for autonomous organisations. Her restless drive towards improvement, effectiveness and inclusion is at the heart of why she founded successful B Corp, Hawksby, in 2015 and continues to underpin everything she does. Lizzie, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with the book. Um, what, what was the sort of the, the genesis of putting a book out on work style? Or do you need to go back a step further and talk talk about Hoxby first? Which one comes first? <laughs> the book really came from two places. One was in 2020, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. There's nothing mm-hmm. like a cancer diagnosis to make you um, reflect on what you want to do in life that you haven't Indeed. done. And I was very lucky. There weren't many things. There was just one really, writing a book. Um, and so for me personally, this was about writing a book about what I'm fighting for so that my children would know, even if I wasn't here to tell them myself. Mm. Um, and secondly, it was a catalyst really, the catalyst was the pandemic, that we've been working in an autonomous work style way for eight years with everyone who works with us having the freedom to choose when and where they work. And for the first five years, people thought we were a bit weird, if we're honest. And then the (laughs) pandemic happened and suddenly everyone wanted to know how we worked. And so we decided to open source everything. We were trying to tell everyone. And in the end, we thought, let's put it in a book. Mm-hmm. And then everyone can read it in the book. So um, it really came from both of those places. But work style, the title is a made up word. Um, it's a word Alex and I made up in the pub, which means the freedom to choose when and where you work, because we wanted a word that was not loaded with prejudice, like mm-hmm. shirking from home, um, part timer, flex pest. You know, we wanted something <laughs> that was that was neutral that you could say, "What is your work style?" And it didn't presuppose that you had to work five days a week, nine. To- so let's go back then to 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 Hoxby. What what is Hoxby for for anyone who's never heard of it? Yeah, so Hoxby is um, a work style working community. So it's a community of um, around five hundred freelancers across thirty nine countries. Um, and we come together to deliver projects for big clients like Unilever, Amazon, AIA, Merck, Divine Chocolate, one of my personal favorites, and B-Lab. And so what we actually do is we deliver creative marketing and communications work on the one hand. And then on the other hand, we consult in helping other organizations to become more autonomous, more inclusive. Um, and to work in more progressive ways for competitive advantage. So all the work we do in the marketing and communication side um, is in pursuit of great creative output. But in doing it, we are continuously learning how to work in an autonomous way that we can then help package up and consult to other organizations in how they they can do it. So everyone at Hoxby works on their own work style. They choose when and where they work. And we mean that in the most extreme sense. Mm -hmm. So everyone's remote. We don't have an office. And in terms of choosing when they work, well, you might have someone that only works term time or only works during nap times or evenings. So it really is 
completely up to you what projects you want to do and uh, what you want to take on and you're judged on your output rather than any of the factors that create bias at work which is why we exist to eliminate that and and what's your your background what did you what led you to to set up Hoxby in the first place are you from a creative my background's in marketing but for me there were a number of kind of personal catalysts that meant that I came to a point where work style really became my calling. So it was when I had my first child, my son Finn, that I think my eyes were properly opened to enduring inequalities at work. And I'm I'm kind of embarrassed to say that because until then, I had worked in relative ignorance of the people who were excluded from work by the nine to five working day. Um, but when I had Finn, I suddenly didn't want to be at work during his waking hours. I wanted to be working during nap times or in the evenings and I wanted to be judged on my output. And so that's where, what kind of led me to the conversation in the pub with Alex, where we came up with the word work style and we thought it was all going to be so easy from then on. Um, but these things take work. Um, but two years after that conversation in the pub, I had some serious complications in my second pregnancy with my twin daughters, Zoe and Megan. And that meant having surgery at 23 weeks and being on bed rest for nine weeks. And actually, for someone like me, who likes to be doing a lot of things, um, work was transformative for me during those nine weeks. Only a few people knew about my personal circumstances and I could escape into my digital working world during long anxiety ridden days. And so for me, that was a real test of work style working for me personally. And it proved how positive the impact can be on your mental health of being able to feel fulfilled and distracted at times like that. And we're very lucky that both our daughters against the odds survived. And the day we brought them home from hospital and we couldn't begin to fit the double buggy through the front door of our (laughs) London flat, um, we decided to move across the country to Bristol. And because of work style, I could do so with no disruption at all to my career, which was amazing. And then obviously, I mentioned it before, but in 2020, out of the blue, I was diagnosed with breast cancer, which turned my world upside down as a seemingly healthy 38-year-old. And again, work style working was my outlet, doing as much or as little as I felt up to that week or day. And having something to pass the time in the chemo chair, but also something that meant that the cancer diagnosis didn't define me Mm. and didn't fill my head. And since then, almost unbelievably, my husband's been diagnosed with cancer. (laughs) It's all go in our household. Um, And so now I put my work around supporting him through his treatment, trying to stay healthy myself and managing the side effects of my medication and looking after three small children. So I think it's fair to say that work style has gone from being a kind of concept that I believed could profoundly affect society to something that has profoundly impacted my own life and my happiness in facilitating me to continue to be fulfilled and happy during what's actually been some some quite difficult times over the last eight years. Mm. And we, we haven't even mentioned the, the the small matter of a pandemic, a global pandemic yes. going on <laughs> in, in the mix <laughs> and exactly. homeschooling and Exactly. And um, I was having cancer treatment during the pandemic. So we isolated at home with the kids for four months. And wow, that was uh, an unusual time. You know, I feel like we've been to a parallel universe and oh, yeah. and come back. <laughs> so, it, but, uh, but the pandemic has really changed things because I think before we used to campaign for work style and diversity and inclusion through new models of work. And 
people would think we were weird or why would they do that? But the pandemic did really help. It's been a a bit of an enlightenment, I think, for a lot of people Mm -hmm. in understanding that work can be done differently. And don't get me wrong, a lot of people were working in horrible circumstances whilst also looking after children or lots of organizations just took back-to-back meetings in the office and made it back-to-back meetings on Zoom. But but I think it showed people that there was another way, which has fundamentally helped us uh, to mean that people are more receptive to work style. It's helped us to have those conversations now. Mm. It, it does feel that like, there's been a reasonably radical reimagining of what work life might look like, although obviously there's some notable exceptions of companies that are trying to, to drive people back to sort of bums on seats five days a week. Are you trying not to mention Elon Musk? Uh, I'm I, I wouldn't even give the man <laughs> airtime if he no, in Twitter shares. But, I agree, um... <laughs> I agree. But I think, I think what's interesting is that there's a lot of talk now about hybrid working, about, you know, doing something in the, the middle ground. You only need to come back into the office three days a week. But mm. in the book, we look at excluded groups who are those groups who are specifically and structurally excluded from work by working in a traditional way. So that's older workers, carers, those with chronic illness, mm-hmm. physical disabilities, mental health challenges, parents and those who are neurodiverse. And for those seven groups, it's not okay to be in the office three days a week. That may well structurally exclude them from work. And each of those groups has shocking statistics to show the gap between the people who want to work and the people who do. So, for example, 57% of people with autism want to work, but only 26% do. So there's a 51% gap in that group alone and I think our fear is that work is going back to being unaccommodating at a time when we could be fundamentally redefining work in order to level the playing field for everyone to engage with it on their terms. Forcing people back into a system that doesn't work for them. Exactly and things have changed you know not only has have we had a pandemic that means that we've all seen this fundamentally there have been changes in society you know technology has changed the portability of hardware the prevalence of wi-fi you can tether to your mobile phone now so you can literally work from anywhere that you have mobile phone reception and and demographics are changing we've got an aging population and as our life expectancy increases all of our life expectancy increases where a nation state can't fund pensions and social care and where families and communities can't provide the support that's needed Older people will simply have to continue working in order to remain financially independent. And I know you'll have a stat, but 21% of the worldwide population will be over 60 by 2050. Wow. So if we don't change the way we work, businesses simply won't be able to have enough workers to meet their needs because they won't be able to engage that large Mm. portion of the, the workforce. So I think things have had already fundamentally changed pre pandemic. And the thought that we would go back to a way of working that's more than 200 years old is just devastating. You know, the nine to five working day was invented in 1817. Why are we still working that way? It does drive me a bit mad. <laughs> I don't know. It is interesting, isn't it? The way that the the pandemic kind of accelerated a trend that was already there, but that we seem to have already kind of stepped back from a lot of those things that, as you say, you know, enabled people with with sort of some kind of disability or chronic illness to to participate in in a a way that worked for them or you know one of the interesting things I think that came out of it was the way that people who are perhaps more 
introverted uh, were able to to um, engage in meetings because everybody was online. They weren't in a room, so they felt perhaps that you know that they had more ways that they could contribute when every when there was a sort of a level playing field and everyone was you know in the same situation. I think that's really true, and I think technology has had a big impact on that. You know, it really is feasible now to be digital first, not physical first. But in order to do that, you need the right combination of collaborative software to make it happen. You know, at Hoxby, we don't have an office. Um, Slack is our office. But I think that's that's really important for the introverts as well as the extroverts to be able to contribute, you know, a considered response, whether it's in a video Slack clip or whether it's in the written word to take the time to think about something and respond on your terms and engage with things on your terms. You know, we've got a digital channel in our Slack called The Water Cooler, still full of cats and dogs and babies and gifts, but (laughs) people can engage with The Water Cooler when they need a bit of light relief or when they want to, rather than being interrupted when they're at their desk because someone drops by. So it basically, the big thing about WorkStyle is that it individualizes work in every way. So you can work in the way that best suits you for your well-being um, and in order to be your most productive as well. Are there clients then that you've worked with over the last couple of years that are trying to implement this in an old, you know, in a kind of what we might call a traditionally corporate environment and are trying to sort of take that radical shift towards reimagining things for, for their employees? Yeah, and I think that we recognise that we are really privileged that we started this way. So since inception, we've worked in a work style way because I think sometimes it's moving to a different way of working. It's moving away from contracted hours to contracted outputs. It's moving away from synchronous to asynchronous um, and from presence-based working and presenteeism to trust-based working. Sometimes those are the hardest transitions to make. And I think it's all underpinned by culture, basically which is what is the culture and how do you make sure that it remains positive and and trust-based? And, you know, that you're not judging people. You know, I work from hairdresser, but it doesn't mean I'm not absolutely dedicated to my career. It just means that I'm obsessed with making the best use of all of my time. <laughs> um, but particularly since I have kids and, you know, other stuff, I want to make sure I'm making the best use of my time. That's It's a really personal thing. And so for us, we... We talk about three rules to work this way. The first is be digital first, not physical first, as I talked about just now. The second is work asynchronously, not synchronously. So if you've got the right parameters and the right combination of technology and systems and you establish the right ways of working from the start, that can be a really inclusive but also productive and fun way to work. And then the third thing is investing in the trust-based culture. You know, And that includes role modeling, by leaders being recognized, recognizing people doing that well and rewarding them for doing it. And that's not a small change for organizations that might have been around for a couple of hundred years and working nine to five, five days a week for all that time. That's mm, a big change, isn't it? Recognizing people based on their results, their output, as opposed to, you know, are you are you the, the first person to turn up in the office in the morning and the last one to leave and emailing on a Sunday morning or... Exactly. And I think digital presenteeism is alive and well as well. I think that, you know, you need as a at a cultural level to recognise that 
presenteeism isn't only about having your coat on the back of your chair. It's also about having the green dot next to your name or sending an email late at night um, and just making sure that that is that the right framework and the right cultural cues are in place so that people know they don't need to do that. You know, respect the work style is one of one of our values at Hawksby that we always talk about. And I think that kind of thing really helps. I really like, so one of the things that, that you all do is, is put your work style in your email signatures, for example. Yeah. Um, what, what's the most unusual uh, signature that you've come across yet? Well, mine, mine when I had cancer was a good one. I think it said something like, having cancer treatment, only working when I feel up to it. It's like the most broad work style of all time. Um, and obviously, um, I have a co-author and a business partner, and so we we managed our workloads together from that respect. But um, yeah, there's some that are just working during nap times. I always, I always quite like that, working during babies' nap times because I think that the binary return to work is madness and very difficult to manage mentally when you've had a long period off work and then suddenly overnight your life completely changes. Um, and I think that, has, that creates a lot of mental health challenges and complexities for parents returning to work. Mm, not so, to mention the financial implications of trying yeah. to afford childcare for Suddenly, any number of children. <laughs> well, and particularly that if you can only go back to work four days or five days a week, you've got to pay for four days or five days a week of childcare. Whereas if it's somewhere in between, you know, or if you can work your evenings, then maybe the children are in bed upstairs and you don't need childcare because you can fit it around it in other ways. So if you, you know, potentially you, you are always on, <laughs> yeah that's how, 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 do, how do you what do you personally do to, to put good boundaries in place um Alex always says you need to make technology work for you rather than you working for technology and I think a lot of us are afraid to go in and tinker with the settings in our technology so for example for me slack is our office at Hoxby it's where we all engage we don't use email mm -hmm. um and I don't have the slack app on my phone and I don't have it on my personal iPad. I only have it on my work computer. And that means that I can't engage with it. I also have my, e I don't have my emails turned on, my work emails turned on on my personal phone, unless I'm specifically somewhere. Like I've been doing quite a few speaking events with the launch of the book and then I would turn it on, but I, I know how to toggle it on and off very easily. And I make sure that I just don't turn it on on a non-working day. So I think it's, it's partly about technology and it's partly about routine getting in good habits. And I think there's a lot to unlearn for those of us who've previously worked in traditional ways. And I actually think people entering the workforce are by far the best at this because they don't carry all the baggage that we do of this kind of expectation of ourselves to be working nine to five or whatever. But for instance, I go to the gym and for a swim three times a week. And if I do that straight after drop off, then I don't start work till 10 or 10 30. Um, but that's okay because I know that that is my routine and I'm going to do it. So making it less of a conscious decision and more of a routine, I find really helps. There's been obviously the sort of the perception, perhaps we talked, you know, a fair bit about how flexible working is so helpful for, for people with, with kids, for example. But, but there's also been a lot written about how millennials are, are sort of demanding that flexibility from from employers and, and you know really making choices about jobs on that basis is that something that you've also seen coming through in Hoxby yeah and I mean 
the talent of people we have at Hoxby is unbelievable. Like it really is such a privilege to work in a community with so many talented people. But every single person has their own burning platform to want to work differently. They've either been discriminated against at some point. They have life circumstances that mean they can't work in an office. And I think that at the moment that is that's the group of people who need to work in a work style way. But what we're increasingly seeing is what you're saying about people moving to insist that they are only willing to work in an autonomous way. Mm. Um, and, and as a result, and particularly with UK labour market shortages at the moment, there's a lot of conversations going on about how do we bring more people into the workforce, um, but also how can companies attract the best possible talent they can only do that by offering flexible, hybrid, or ideally, in our case, autonomous working, because people are actually declining job opportunities if they don't have that. And the power is with the people at the moment because of the labour market shortages. So I think, hopefully, I'm hopeful that that will be the catalyst for change. We are slight sceptics about flexible and hybrid working. We're fearful that organisations use the phrase flexible working to kind of claim that they're allowing people to work flexibly when actually it doesn't go far enough. Mm. Fundamentally, flexible working is flexing around a 200-year-old industrial age, nine-to-five, five-day-a-week system. And it also creates in-group, out-group dynamics. I mean, the prevailing way of working is still nine-to-five, five days a week. And that means that anyone who works differently from that is seen as special and perceived mm. as kind of a special outgroup. And then also, it, flexible working just isn't creating change fast enough for those excluded groups that I talked about earlier. Really, it only helps working parents. But even working parents, 86% of working parents say they want to work flexibly, but only 49% do. So there's still a 37% gap there. So I think for mm. us, we feel like flexible working isn't the answer. We need to move to something that's more fit for the digital age and work style working which is much more individualized um, is the answer for that and so companies who say publicly you know they're trying to be more more inclusive could actually put their money where their mouth is if you like uh, and, and actually implement something like this would would be much more powerful for example than than perhaps tinkering with their job ads and and, exactly. and interview it- processes I mean, Emma, it's exactly that. Like, let's not make workplace modifications. Let's get rid of the workplace and create a level playing field. And this isn't just good for individuals. Like, it it is good for individuals. It's good for our mental health. It's good for our physical health. It's good for our learning. It's good for our motivation. But also, this is fundamentally better for, for business. You know, autonomy, people who work autonomously are more productive. People who can choose their own work environment are more productive. So we know that there's a productivity element and also cognitive diversity. When you have cognitive diversity in your organization and you integrate it well, you are more collectively intelligent as a group. Those organizations outperform other organizations. So I think for us, diversity has moved from being a kind of something on the HR agenda and nice to have to being a real source of competitive advantage. Like if you have a diverse workforce, you will be more successful as an organization. And for me, it really jars that as we're heading into a recession, a lot of organizations are now saying, oh, you need to come back to the office because they're feeling nervous. When actually the best way through and out the other side of this recession is to embrace that trust, 
let people work autonomously, have more diverse, diverse workforces and less groupthink, and then have a more collectively intelligent workforce as a result. Mm. And you, you talk a few times about trust, and I think that's that's one of the big things, isn't it? Where if you, you don't trust your team to work, not kind of under direct supervision in the office, if you like, that that's kind of a huge telltale sign. So yeah, how do you build up sort of organisational trust, culture of trust? I think that's, you know, that is the big question. And I think it starts with leadership. Remote leadership is something completely different from place-based leadership and it should be treated as such and it's about letting go of all of the insecurities of I can't see you and therefore you're not working and instead believing that we're all working towards a common goal I mean Hoxby is a social enterprise and a B Corp we've had the same vision from day one which is to create a happier more fulfilled society through a world of work without bias and I do think that that it binds us all together Everyone in the Hoxby community is working towards that vision. And we know that the better the work we do, the better our clients, the more impact we can have, the more we will work towards that vision. So I think a big part of trust is leadership and working towards a shared goal, as well as just fundamentally having faith in human nature. I remember at a conference years ago, someone saying to me, we we were supposed to be watching the conference, but he was seemingly more interested in the Hoxby business model. And he was saying to me, but how can you trust people you can't see? And I was yeah, like... you've never met them. <laughs> I was like, yeah, exactly. I've never met, you know, the vast majority of Hoxby's I've never met. Our finance director, I didn't meet her for more than three years, I think. But that doesn't, you know, why does that mean that, you know, as a human species, we should be able to see the good in people and to trust people when we're working towards a shared shared vision? So... We've found that that is possible, but it's something you have to invest in. I think that the biggest misconception is that culture just happens by itself. And the reality is, if you let culture happen by itself, it won't end up being the culture you set out to achieve. You need to invest time, energy, money in in creating purposely the culture that you want. And presumably, you know, there's a bit more work involved if you have a distributed organisation and nobody is necessarily having that that face time in in kind of building your team dynamic putting the work in as you say to make sure that people feel like they belong and and everyone is kind of pulling in the same direction I think it's a really interesting point because I think there is a general shorthand that if you work in an office you get that sense of belonging you feel part of a team but actually more than 50% of Brits say that they suffer from loneliness in the workplace. And I think it is a misconception that just because you're going to a shared place, mm. you are connecting with people. Whereas, you know, probably the most common question that Alex and I are asked is, but how can you connect with people when you're all working remotely? And the reality is that you can, you just need to think a bit harder about it, which actually people should be doing in any organisation. So, for example, at Hoxby, we have interest channels, which are not for work. They're just for people who want to connect about something. Mm-hmm. I'm a part of interest menopause because I'm going through early menopause as a result of the cancer treatment. And I, it's hard to put into words how unbelievably supportive that group has been. By far the most supportive group I've found in helping me through the menopause. And these are people I've never met. They're globally dispersed, but we all have something in common. And that is we're all going through the menopause and that we all believe in creating change for a happier more fulfilled society 
And so I think that actually connection can be really profound when you're remote. You just need to set up structures and purposeful ways of doing it rather than assuming that because everyone's in an office, they're all feeling deeply connected. So what's your your hope, if you like, for, for the work style, for the birth, the, the ethos, if, you know, five years from, from now, what, what would be your ideal? I think we would like autonomous work and work style to be the main way that people are working. <laughs> I mean, maybe five years is optimistic. <laughs> I think we, we want people to use the word work style. We want it to become part of the vernacular. Alex and I wrote the book really in order to increase our impact on the world. So there's an element as well that we hope lots of people read the book and it starts a conversation. You know, not everyone will work this way, but hopefully it will open people's eyes to the fact that we can work differently and it's fundamentally better for well-being, productivity and society. And I think the reality is that we're at an inflection point. Mm. You know, the way we choose to engage with work in this post-pandemic period will define our future. And either we can retrench into traditional ways of working like flexible and hybrid and office-based, or we can do something really different and we can redefine the way we work, we can redefine society by engaging with work in a different way. So our hope is that we capitalise on that inflection point um, and that many, many people are included in work by being able to work in a work style way. Well, I sincerely hope we get there. I, for one, will be adding my work style to my email signature after this Brilliant. interview. <laughs> and um, yeah, we shall all lead by example. I hope it catches on. Lizzie, it's been such a joy to uh, chat to you. I'll pop a link to the book in the show notes and um, when we promote this online I, I normally ask guests if we're sort of talking about things in the menopause or perimenopause space what they wish they knew before they sort of went into perimenopause but I guess for you it was it was very different but did, did you know did you have any preparation for that for going into to early early menopause I didn't and I think that coming off the back of a cancer diagnosis and a lot of chemotherapy it felt like the kind of cherry on top it was just another thing to deal with when I was already dealing with a lot of things mm. and I think it can be really lonely you know I'm going through the menopause at 40 I don't have any of my friends are going through the menopause at this age so I think that I wish that earlier on I'd connected with other people because it's just so powerful hearing other people's experiences mm. and also even listening to um your last um episode of this podcast you know i i like the data the, the work style <laughs> book has over 600 references don't let that put you off but i like things to be empirically you know grounded and for me understanding what's going on with my body that's been a real learning curve and there are so many people out there that that have a lot of knowledge about it but can also support on the emotional and well-being side that i think for probably if I could go back I wouldn't spend those first few months thinking I've just got to suck this up I would instead mm -hmm. earlier on join that group and tell people how I was feeling and realize that I'm not alone loads of people are feeling Definitely like this not alone yeah and actually I would just add since we're talking about the menopause that it's estimated that a million women have dropped out of the workforce because of menopause and I think that that is as important as any of these groups we've talked about because it's a silent thing that is changing people's lives and it means they're not getting the happiness and fulfillment that they 
previously did through work because of the menopause. And so I think, again, we need work style to bring all those amazing women back into working, but being able to do it on their terms. Absolutely. What a perfect ending to, to a really, really fascinating episode. I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you for joining Thank us. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Middling Along podcast. Do remember to subscribe to be notified when our next episode is live. And why not visit the blog at www.middlingalong.com to sign up to my newsletter as well. I do hope you enjoyed listening today. If you did, I'd be really grateful if you would consider leaving a short review as that helps people find the podcast and helps get it noticed. Hope you can join us next time. Goodbye for now.